Every time you do a trailer read, you have to be like, nope, this is how it's supposed to sound. If you don't like it, screw you. But this is what it is. <laughs> Getting feedback from someone, choosing not to take it personally, is actually very freeing. And I find for me that I do the worst when I'm trying to give somebody what they want. It's like the modern version of the the two people inside of a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Times are changing. We want different voices. We want different races. We want more female voices. I think it's a beautiful thing. And there is something about the strength in numbers that has been really emboldening. Lying on the floor, flopping around like a, <laughs> like a fish for 45 minutes. We work in isolation booths. So if we, <laughs> if we don't want to be isolated, we should leave those booths. You never think, uh, I hope he asks me to be, I hope he pitches me to whoever he's, like if you think that way and you're just trying to use people. Blah, 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 blah. Oh my God, that's him. Wow, you got the part. Hired on the spot. Yeah. pilots my meat suit. I've only heard really bad things about Jamie. Right. Well, yeah, that know, makes sense. That, that makes sense. Watch the <laughs> though. Instead of trying to figure out how to get into it, I just brought a bunch of people together that none of us knew in the industry. Stop wiping expectations on any audition. As soon as you start telling stories and having actors touch people's heads and hearts with their performances, you're going to have people that are going to want to connect to the people behind those voices. You're going to get a lot more no's than you get yeses, and I, that's true for me today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Now, today we are answering your questions I'm too afraid to ask, brackets, publicly, close brackets, <laughs> even though this is a podcast which is very much public. <laughs> um, these questions were asked anonymously um, via the Google form that I posted in the Facebook group, which you should absolutely join, by the way, if you want to be involved in future podcasts. And it was anonymous unless you chose to write your name in the text box. And just for safety, I don't want to read a name I shouldn't by mistake. I'm going to just ask all of these questions anonymously. We've got a crack team of people answering the questions today. Lovely bunch of people, seven people who pre-recorded their answers and sent them over. They picked the questions that they felt best appropriate to answer, and um, they did a fantastic job. Sometimes they agreed, sometimes they were quite close to agreement and slight variations, but it was amazing. Pretty much everyone was on the same page with everything and they didn't collude. <laughs> this was all recorded independently. So hopefully we've really got to some truths. So we are going to be hearing from Mia Bankston, Tracy Lindley, J. Michael Collins, Alyssa Zia, Kelly Wilkening from Big Mouth Talent, Maria Pendolino and David Toback. So six amazing voice actors and an agent working in the field day in, day out with talent and with buyers and with everyone else. So we've, I believe we've got quite a broad knowledge base here to answer these questions. Maria is back next time for our politicals episode, and we'll talk about that nearer the time. But yeah, I just wanted to introduce those guys and thank them for their time and effort. Clearly, they put a lot of thought into these answers, which you will hear shortly. I will be back after the break to introduce the questions, and then we're going to hear from our esteemed team of talent. The National Zoo. Because sometimes you just need to stroke a llama. Instagram. Download it and start embarrassing your teenagers today. Resolve spot and stain. Because the dog's gonna drag his butt on the carpet. He just is. Engage the droid army with this Lego Star Wars Republic fighter tank. Hi, it's J. Michael Collins. And these are just a few examples of the first-class demos my team and I are producing. If you'd like to have something similar, visit jmcvoiceover.com and click on the Demo Production tab to find out more. Okay, question one. 
How honest are coaches? We pay them, they say good job, but are they saying that because we're paying them to? Here's Alyssa Zia. It really depends on the coach. So unfortunately, with so many people wanting to get into this business, there are a lot of shysters out there trying to take advantage of the influx of new talent and see it as a way to make money. And they may just tell you what you want to hear or may just be coaching from a place of not even knowing about the business. So you just have to really do your due diligence using like the Facebook pages, uh, the groups and other people that you know to find the reputable coaches. I think coaches are pretty honest overall. I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of coaches in the world. So it depends on where you're seeing that information, who you're being um, exposed to. There are a lot of coaches that will just take your money. They're selling a product. They're selling service. This is exactly why GVAA was created. You know, there's a lot of people being taken advantage of, not getting great coaching. You know, that's why GVA was kind of established to, to stem that. You need to find the people that... Uh, resonate with you and that you 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 vibe with and you understand where they're coming from you know ask uh, other coaches ask people that you've worked with people maybe that are your mentors people you look up to in the voiceover industry who they go to who they trust at the end of the day there's going to be people that are out there for your best interests and are extremely honest and I know for a fact at GVAA and other places, other people that are, provide services that they turn people away that they don't think are ready to, to compete at that level or to produce a demo at that level, you know, that aren't ready coaching. Maybe they have a speech impediment of some sort. You know, there's people that are honest that are that are taking people's, um, you know, their their money, their investment and and their dream into into account and take that very seriously. Coaches are pretty honest if you vet them beforehand. Talk to your voiceover friends, join voiceover forums, and um, search posts about certain coaches or ask if you don't see anything about a coach. You'll find that usually coaches with great reputations are always mentioned in the forums or at voiceover conferences. As a matter of fact, if a coach happens to facilitate a workshop at a conference, that's a great way to see not only how they interact with you, but with others. Also, sometimes you can start working with a coach and realize that you aren't a great fit. And that's okay. Maybe the coach's style just doesn't gel with the way that you learn. It's okay to walk away from a great coach if you don't feel like it's working out. How are we choosing them? Are we choosing them based on genre? Are we choosing them based on reputation? What are we looking for? I think you need to vet a coach before you even start working with them. So, for instance, I worked with Mary Lynn Wisner, and I still continue to work with her regularly because I book a lot of commercials. That's my main genre that I book in. So I want to continue to stay fresh and do my very best. And because she's also a casting director, she's booking these jobs. I mean, she's casting talent for these jobs. So she knows what sounds current. She's always being like, don't be too reedy. You know, we don't want to read the copy. We want to emote. We want to act. We want to express. But we don't want to read the copy. So, you know, there's other coaches that are going to help you get stronger in narration or medical e-learning narration. Whatever it is, you should have a goal in mind and you should want to have a reason for doing it. So if you're thinking about working with a coach, Ask for a list of uh, former students and maybe you can reach out to some of those people to find out what their experience was and 
those people will surely be honest with you. So then the coaches would be honest. So I understand, you know, the question is asking, how honest are they being with your performance? I would assume that a coach is paying, you're being paid to be honest. I don't want to be paid just to say, oh, good job. Go ask a parent, go ask a friend to tell you good job. Hey, please listen to this. Oh, great job. You know, if you need a pat on the back, go ask a friend. Don't go to your coach. Now, uh, that being said, when you do get praise from your coach, it means more. Anyway, I say the most important thing is step one, vet the coach. And then you're not paying them to hear a good job. You're paying them to give you good constructive feedback that you can take and use to continue to excel in your craft. Question two. If you were not a booking god, does your agency start sending less and less auditions? Here's JMC. I don't know that they'll send fewer and fewer auditions. I think the the danger would be that they might drop you at some point, but I think they're going to give you as many chances as they can to uh, to book because that's the purpose of having you at the agency. So I don't know that I'd worry about not being a booking god. Uh, I personally have agents that I book with regularly. I have other agents I book with once a year. I, I still get at-bats from them, so I, I wouldn't necessarily worry, worry about that. But if you aren't booking consistently with your agents, you may want to chat with them about uh, – what they think you might be able to do better. And again, look at a little more training in the areas that you're struggling in. But no, I I don't think that uh, they'll send you fewer just because you haven't booked frequently. It is a reciprocal relationship. It's a partnership. So if you're not booking um, the work like you think that you should be booking, you can talk to your agent and ask them, you know, is there something that I can do or is there uh, any feedback that has been given or would they suggest any feedback? Also, you can ask for, have a chat and talk about the kinds of auditions, the kinds of genres that you're looking for, or the kinds, if if it's specifically commercial, the kinds of brands or the kinds of uh, categories that you would like to audition for specifically. It's rare that I've heard of that an agent will stop sending you auditions if you're not booking because they want you to succeed and they, they will continue to uh, try to make sure that you succeed. So the way that breakdowns work, they get sent to the agency with whatever the specs are. They then send it out to everyone that fits that spec, people that book a lot and maybe someone newer on the roster or someone that's been on the roster for a while that may not book as much. But they generally will send it to everybody. Then you do the audition and you send it back to them. However, usually whoever they got it from will tell them how many people they can submit. So out of all of their talent that fit the specs, they may actually only be submitting three or four auditions from the 15 that they got from what's on their roster. And unfortunately, if you are someone that's not booking as much, you might not be making the cut into what's actually going on to the casting director. The best thing to do if you're not booking with your agency is to talk to them. Recommendations on what you can do to make your reads better, if there's a coach they recommend that could help you with your skills, or what's just off. Almost every time that I've gone through a job lag, I always go back to coaching. And it usually just kind of shakes things up a bit, reminds me of some tips and tricks that I haven't used in a while, and just gets me out of my comfort zone of what like my regular bookable read is. I truly believe that the agencies that I'm with are sending me what's appropriate for my voice type. So if it says, you know, female, 
25 to 45 quirky. I don't know, whatever. I mean, the performance depends on me. But um, if I fit the spec, they should be sending me that audition, even if I'm not booking regularly. So I truly believe that agencies are not being picky based on who's booking. Why would you want to send the same people the same auditions? Because wouldn't you want to hear a variety of voices? I think when we start telling ourselves that we're getting less auditions because we're not booking, that's coming from a place of, you know, a lack of confidence. Yeah, we can all get down. We can get down on ourselves. It's happened to me too. I'm experiencing a, a time now where I have a client that, a potential client that's being extremely, extremely picky with my performance, my studio, my everything. And it's starting to make me question myself. But I just have to get back in that brain space of remembering that I've had hundreds of jobs and hundreds of clients that love my work. If I don't happen to book with a particular agency, that doesn't mean I suck. It just means I need to give myself a pep talk and move on. And if I do need a performance check, that's when you go back and meet with those coaches and say, hey, can I work with you? You know, I'll hire you for an hour. Do you do private sessions? I would love to get your feedback on my performance style in this particular genre. Or if you feel like they're qualified to critique you across different genres, then cool. No, I don't think that agencies send less auditions based on how much you're booking. Question three. Do top agencies only want to bring in talent that earn top dollars so they know they are getting top bookers? Here's Maria. I think that an agent that you're submitting to cares less about how much money you're making and actually is looking for talent. They want to be able to see and hear that you are an actor and you know how to bring copy to life. Are you ready to work in today's environment? Do you have a studio set up? Are you able to submit auditions? Can you do jobs from a home studio? That's becoming more and more the norm for a lot of genres. Are you responsible, respectful? Are you the kind of person that's going to confirm immediately when asked? Are you easily reachable? Are you someone that they want to talk to on the phone several times a week if necessary? And I think sometimes they're just looking for that it factor. Do you have something that they don't have? Do you have something special or unique in the quality of your voice? Do you fill a gap on their roster? I think they're looking for that more than how much money you've made. Now, when you are submitting to an agency, if you can tell them that you've booked a couple things, I think that shows them that you have the traction and path to become a top booker. But they'll sign people straight out of school, too. I think of people like Lapita Nyong'o, who went to Juilliard. You know, when she was looking for managers and agents coming out of Juilliard, she didn't have four movies and three Broadway shows under her belt. No, she's just really freaking talented, and I'm sure everybody was excited to meet with her. It can be the same for voiceover. If you have done the work to become a really fantastic voice actor and you bring really strong performances and auditions to the table, I think that is more important than how much money you made last year. I just really think that a variety of voices is always a great thing. You never know what the client's going to want. Plus, what do they know? How do they know how much you earn? No one knows how much money you make. It's not like you have to put that down when you're joining a roster. So what would they know how much you book and how much you don't? It's really nobody's business. So I think whatever you're earning, it should not come into play when it depends on whether or not you get on a roster. It really should depend on your talent. It should depend on 
okay, do we book mostly for commercials? Okay, we need somebody that, you know, isn't strictly e-learning or audiobooks. You know, the genre and the performance of that talent should fit whatever that agency sort of specializes in. Or, you know, if they do all kinds of stuff, then get somebody who's versatile. Of course, agencies want to bring in talent that are going to book, but that doesn't mean you have to have already booked a ton of work. It is easier for them if they're bringing in someone that's established because then the casting directors already know who they are and it's easier to get that name and that audition in front of them. However, if you have a positive attitude, if your reads are current, competitive, if you are directable, if you are reliable on time, then there's no reason for them not to bring you on. They're always looking for fresh voices because casting directors are always looking for something new to present to their clients. Agents want earners in 2021-2022. They uh, they don't develop talent the way that they used to, which isn't to say that they don't ever do it. It's just become less common. So a body of work and preferably uh, some recent wins, something that's airing, uh, usually uh, is a good, good way to get yourself signed. Not having those things isn't necessarily a killer, but uh, it doesn't help. Question four. I booked a job through a representative and no details about payment time frame were specified in the email. 60 days have passed and I haven't yet received payment. At what point is it appropriate to ask my representative about when I'll be paid? Here's Kelly. At that point, <laughs> typically if it's a non-union job, I tell talent that it can take anywhere from 60 to 90 days to remit payment. And after 90 days, if I personally haven't been paid, then I will reach out to the client asking, you know, for a time frame on when we can expect payment. But at no point feel, you know, nervous to ask your agent when payment will come. It's a very typical question, and we are always happy to answer that. If it's a SAG job, then there is a specified time frame that checks need to be cut and sent to your agent. There's never a bad time to ask about payments. Um, you know, your representative, say this is your agent, Obviously, there's going to be some leeway. There is a time period between booking a job and the payment being made to the agent and them cutting a check to you. So, you know, I say, you know, it's never a bad thing to say, hey, um, you know, what's the process for getting paid on this job, especially if it's like your first job with an agent and you're just not sure or, you know, you're just not sure of of the lay of the land. Usually agents will kind of have like a 30 day rolling cycle or a 60 day cycle, depending on when they get when they get paid. Every agency uh, and representative is going to be different with their process. I know that the mine that I've dealt with, it's been when they got paid from the client for that work, they turned around and, you know, took take their commission and pay me. I had an example where I did some work for a, uh, a client, did several sessions, and I was, wasn't getting anything. And it's probably like a month later, and I was like, hey, so when are we thinking that that's going to be paid out? Like, you know, just so I have an idea. And she's like, oh, I'm still waiting to get payment from the client. But as soon as I get payment from the client, then I'm, send, I'm sending you your check. So it's always good to have that open communication with your representatives. Don't be afraid. There's not some minimal time. If you, if you have a question, you're just wondering like, oh, hey, you know, when, when will this be paid out? Just so I'm aware. You know, and if you don't hear anything, it's been 30 days. And they say, oh, yeah, in about 30 days, you know, give them some time. You know, it's been 30, you know, 45 days, maybe even 60 you know, I know that's kind of a little bit of time to wait for payment, but, you know, sometimes those things happen and uh, just follow up and say, hey, just checking up on that payment. Any idea, you know, when that's coming in? You know, do it from a place of friendliness. You know, the agents are there to help you. They're not there to, oh, man, we're trying to not pay them and earn interest. 
there's probably something going on about it. Don't feel that you can't talk to your agent. The more you communicate, the better off you will be. This depends on if it's union or non-union. If it's union, the client has 14 days from the session to pay your session fee. Then they have 14 days from when it starts airing or being used to start paying you your usage fees. However, that's paying it to your representation. They have to process it, get checks cut, and usually takes another week or two. Pretty consistently, I can count on about 30 days from doing a union job that I'm actually going to have the check in my hand or in my bank account. For a non-union job, it's 90 days. I don't know who started that, but unfortunately, that is still the industry standard. There are some states, including New York, where there has been some legislation passed where they're supposed to pay you within 30 days, but it still has not been accepted across the industry. So, yeah, at the 90-day mark, regardless, you can start asking, where's my money? So if we think about the payment life cycle, right, let's say we have a brand who hires an advertising agency, who hires a production company who then hires a casting director who goes to agents to find people to be the talent on the job. The brand takes 30 days to pay the advertising agency. The advertising agency takes 30 days to pay the production company. The production company takes 30 days to pay your talent agency. And then your talent agency pays you as soon as they can. So already right there in that payment food chain, there's 90 days tied up. And in the non-union world, there's no rules or regulations to change that. So I think I think you're well within your rights to follow up at 60 days. But just know that it's not uncommon for things to take 60 to 90 days to be paid in the non-union world. Union world, you should have your payment sooner than that. I will say also it's important to understand the difference between session and usage. So if you're working in commercials, you will be paid for your session payment first, the amount of money that you're being paid to actually do the work. And then your usage payment may come much, much later because you don't get paid usage unless they actually use it. So if you've recorded a commercial and it's not airing yet, you're not going to receive that usage payment. So you may receive payment in two chunks. Question five. Should I break up with my current freelance representative before trying to get representation from a higher caliber representative? If I'm still freelancing with someone, would a potential bigger fish agent be turned off by that? Here's Kelly again. This one is a little bit tricky for me to answer since I am one of those medium-sized agencies. When someone submits to me, if I know they're with another agency, that doesn't deter me from listening to their demo because I know that they're looking for other representation for whatever reason. However, if I find out that one of my talent is looking for a new representation while still working with me, it does make me not want to work as hard for them knowing that they are eventually going to move on to another agency. Don't give up a relationship you have for one you don't. It's a process, and it might take a little while. Plus, if you give up the relationship with the person that you're freelancing with, if it does take a while, you're going to have a gap in your opportunities, in your experience when you finally meet someone else. They're going to ask, well, what have you done lately? Mm, Crickets. Additionally, The voiceover market has really changed. It's not just a bi-coastal industry anymore. You can be represented by agencies in a lot of different markets. Yes, the major ones, New York and L.A., they do usually want you to sign and you have an exclusive agreement with them in that market. But that doesn't mean that you can't freelance with agents in other markets. 
I would be uh, reticent to break up with current representation um, unless you have something else that you feel is a very strong likelihood of being a yes, um, unless you're simply not getting anything from the rep that you've got, uh, in which case you should probably be having a conversation with them first anyway to try and talk about why and whether or not that can be turned around. And if you still don't think that relationship is working, then then it may well be time to move on. So just don't make rash moves and uh, try to preserve a positive relationship as much as you can. If I have a smaller agency that I am with and a large, large agency wants me. And if I have to make a decision, then that's a personal choice. It depends on, you know, how big a fish do I want to land? Am I happy with the smaller fish that pay me regularly and I've got a good gig that's steady? Or, you know, do I want to break up with all of my smaller brands so that I can land a bigger fish? Um, Maybe there's an automotive brand that you're voicing for and you end up booking some huge national brand and you have to break up with your smaller brand. Well, that's a choice you got to make and that's that's on a, that's on a case by case basis and individual basis, but it does happen and people make those choices and that maybe that's the path you want to take in your career. Um it's really just a personal choice. I think you should keep your freelancing representative until you've secured other representation. You do not have to disclose when you are looking for larger, bigger fish agents. You don't have to disclose who you're working with. I think they understand that a lot of people start with, you know, starter agencies or companies that freelance with a lot of people, knowing that most talent are ultimately having a goal to get to a higher level of representation. But there's no reason to cut off the relationship with your freelance representative before you have secured other representation. You should still seek out opportunities so that you're not completely missing auditions while you're in pursuit of better representation. Question six. Why is there such vitriol on the subject of FICOR? It doesn't make sense for a VO to have made good financial strides doing non-union work, only to be expected to walk away from it when they become union. David Toback. FICOR is... A tough, uh, a sticky subject for some people in the SAG world, uh, SAG after world. For people that are diehard SAG, FICOR can be a dirty word. To the union, they don't, they don't really like FICOR. Um, they want people to be full paid members. They want them to be, you know, SAG after members. They, they don't really like this FICOR thing. FICOR is mandated by the federal government, um, so they don't have a choice in the matter. And I think if they did, there wouldn't be a FICOR. It can present some sort of, you know, there's things like, oh, they're never going to work with you if you're FICOR. They won't do that. I think that's, you know, kind of the older Hollywood um, political greasing elbows type of deal where, oh, you're you're not you're not real SAG after, you know, so you're not really one of us. You know, if that if that's going to happen, then so be it, (laughs) I guess. You know, I think FICOR is great for I know a lot of people that are FICOR that do extremely well and people that said it was the best decision of their career. Um, because it opened them up to do SAG work that did pay really well and other opportunities that came about because they were essentially, you know, SAG SAG eligible and, you know, a, a FICOR talent. So I think what it comes down to is that this is your business. This is your livelihood. If going FICOR is what makes sense for your business and what is going on with your acting career, then that is what makes sense. You know, some people the SAG after lifestyle, those those jobs, they book, they get them, like it works really well. Maybe they're on camera as well. You know, there's other options, you know, there's other things that, that come into play. 
But for some people, yeah, if they don't want to have to try to tra transfer every single thing that they do and be a strict SAG after actor, if FICOR makes more sense for them, they still want to be able to do non-union work. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. So I think it's, it's going to be up to your individual business, what makes sense for you, and uh, be confident in that. Because I know plenty of top-tier talent that are FICOR. So there you go. I think there's quite a lot less vitriol about FICOR today than there used to be. Uh, when I run my retreats, um, with some frequency, the agents kind of all say, have the same tune, which is we don't really need to talk about it. If you're FICOR, you're a dues-paying non-member of the union, and you can do union work. Uh, and if they ask you, are you union, you say yes. So I don't think that it's something you necessarily want to advertise, but I think in today's marketplace where so much work is non-union that those who are in right to work states uh, are, um, you know, you're not, you're not causing yourself any danger or damage by going FICOR. Why is there such vitriol? Well, people get emotional, that's why. I really think you need to take the emotions out of it when it comes to union or non-union. I think you need to look at your lifestyle and, and look at where you live in the world. Look at the type of work you book. Look at where you are in your career. I'll use myself as a personal example. So I live in the Kansas City, Missouri area. I don't live on a coast. I live in the most flyover of all flyover states. <laughs> so most of my work is not, okay, all of my work is non-union. I did book one union gig, I don't know two years ago. So I guess at that point, I could try to join the union. But I don't want to join the union because I have so much non-union work. I, I don't even want to go FICOR because I'm really happy with where my career is. Um, the income I'm making is more than I, I could have ever dreamed of. And I'm, I'm successful doing what I'm doing. I really don't care about huge brands, and I, I do voice for those brands every day. I'm not the voice of whatever. I am the voice of some things, but um, I don't know. I, I, like, I like smaller clients. I like smaller boutique agencies. That's kind of where I, I like to be. It's just a nicer place for me to live, I guess. So for me, I don't understand why people get so hung up on What's your union status? And plus, why is it anyone's business? I, I personally don't understand why there's so much back and forth and everybody being in each other's business about union or non-union or FICOR. I really don't think it's anybody's business but you. So why there's so much vitriol? I don't know. Mind your own business. Question seven. As someone newer to this field after about a 19-year break from acting but SAG-AFTRA, should I consider FICOR? I've booked some e-learning but found it difficult to flip due to company payment policies. Here's Alyssa. It really is a personal choice. However, from my experience and from those of a lot of my peers that I have spoken to about this, if you're just looking to pursue voice acting and not wanting to do on camera anymore, there really isn't a stigma anymore attached and unfortunately, the lion's share of work in voiceover is non-union. It's very, very, very difficult to make a living as a voice actor doing strictly union jobs. Is it possible? Yes, of course, there are people that are doing it. But most of the people that are doing it are those that have been established in the voice industry for a long time. As someone just starting out, you're going to find significantly more opportunities on the non-union side of things. Yeah, well, welcome back. After 19 years, you're... you're Considering FICOR, um, I would not consider FICOR. I would consider building a book of business, getting really seated in the industry, getting work, becoming a working actor, and seeing where that leads you. Um, we always say don't join the union until you have to. And I know people that 
have done many union jobs that are not union or or FICOR, and they're waiting to be forced to join. You know, they're waiting for the, the absolute time where the union has to force them to join or that otherwise they can't do any more work. They kind of get flagged as a must join. Sometimes that happens quickly. Sometimes it doesn't. But that's that's kind of the thing. People don't want to join the union uh, unless they have to or unless it's what they really want to do with their career, all because the opportunities shrink because the union work is not as plentiful as non-union work and not as broad. So I think that, you know, coming back after 19 years, FICOR should not be on the radar. The union shouldn't be on the radar. It should be getting into the groove of being an actor again, being a voice actor, doing the non-union work that's coming, getting agency representation, starting to book and see what happens. Um, you may book a union job. That's possible. Um, and then, you ha- then you're union eligible. But uh, unless you really want to just go union, paying the dues to go FICOR, which is what you need to do, you'd pay the dues and then you know, say that you're going FICOR, I wouldn't think that would be the best opportunity or the best path to take. Get going with VO, see where that leads you, and then start thinking about what is my union type of job opportunities, what type of work am I looking to do, what type of work am I doing. Those are all things to be asking. If you're not doing animation, you're not doing a lot of commercial work, going FICOR, the only benefit that would have is taking non-broadcast, non-union work and flipping it to then be able to try to get healthcare and pension. So... Not the first thing I would think of in, in that regard after after coming back. I think we really have to ask ourselves, what's the benefit of joining the union? There is some more paperwork involved and in, in flipping the work from non-union to union. And, and that's kind of my biggest hang up with it. If, it. if all it was was paying dues and you can audition and, and book non-union or union, I'd probably do it. But the whole thing with the paymaster, you know, people say some people say it's easy. Some people say it's hard. I don't know any different because I'm non-union, so I really can't answer the question. I think there are people that are definitely more equipped that are FICOR that could that could talk about that. I think it depends on what your goals are. Are you trying to book union commercials? Like, what what is it about the union that you want? Are you trying to book um, larger gigs? Are you trying to get those video game roles that are union only? I really think it comes down to what do you want? What is your career path? And maybe talking to a business advisor would help you nail that down. There are several people in the voiceover industry. I personally like Tom Deere. I think he's got really great logical advice. So I would go to someone like Tom and just talk about your business trajectory and what do you want and how am I going to get there? And I mean, you could talk to just another voiceover friend or you could talk to somebody um, who is FICOR and just find out their experience. But I really just think it comes down to education about if I go FICOR, what will my daily life look like? I ask those questions all the time because I'm always thinking about what's the next thing? Where do I need to be? And I've thought about it and, and put it aside. I've said to myself at this point in my life, I don't want to be FICOR. And I've really and truly looked at pros and cons and then set it to the side. And that's the decision I've made. But someone else might make a different decision. But you have to be informed and educated before you can even make the choice. 
Ahem. It's true that great talent is usually hidden. Too many believe that their path has been written, but all that you need is the right place to be. If you like voice acting, that's Voice123. So sign up or upgrade, and then please remember, we'll give you a discount as a premium member. VO School listeners, we're offering you $50 off our premium membership tiers. Just visit us at voice123.com slash plans slash VO School. Terms and conditions apply. Voice123. Speak for yourself. Question 8. Why do voice artists say marketing people should hire professional voice talent instead of doing it themselves? Voice talent often attempt to do their own marketing when they should hire professional marketers. Why the double standard? Becoming a marketing expert takes as long as it does to become a professional voice talent, maybe longer. Here's JMC. You know, that's a really good question. I, I think that it's not necessarily uh, a what about situation. I think that, uh, you know, certainly if voice talent had the funds to hire professional marketers, uh, some of us do. Okay. Some of us have people working for us who do our marketing, but you have to have achieved a certain level of income to be able to afford that. And not all talent are there. So, you know, I think it's, it's the same thing when you have um, people who don't want to hire professional VO and want to do it themselves. It's also, it's often more of a question of budget than anything else. So uh, I don't think we need to be judging anyone. Um, and uh, if you can hire a pro to do it, uh, in most cases in life, you probably should. Ooh, this is a good one. Okay. So why you should hire a professional talent when we are not hiring professional marketers? Well, let's look at the size of the business. What type of business are you looking at to be the professional voice talent? Chances are it's more than just a solopreneur business because that's what we're running over here is one person is in charge. One person is paying the bills. This sort of thing. So when you're looking at a corporation who has a brand to represent, a professional voice talent is what's going to set them apart. Even a local business. I've approached local businesses and say, hey, wouldn't you like to have a professional voice talent even on your phone message? Because that's what's going to set you apart from the other local businesses who just have whoever reading the the voicemail. And that's the first impression that people get when they call after hours or, or before hours. Wouldn't you like that voice to be a professional voice so that your very first impression of your brand is a, is a great one? So I don't think that's a double standard because we have a different budget than a large corporation. We are our brand. And if we need a professional marketer, what does that entail to you? Does that entail hiring someone who's a graphic designer to make your logo instead of you doing it yourself? I've done that. I have never made my own logo, and I even recommend that people who aren't good at graphic design, I'm raising my hand here, those people, like me, should hire a graphic designer to do things like their LinkedIn background photo or like that banner photo in the back. When people first see that, you want that to be a great impression. I'm no good at graphics. I mean, I will recommend and dabble around in Canva, but I just don't have the skill for that. I am more a wordsmith than an illustrator and a graphic designer. So I absolutely believe there are parts of my business that I do hire out in order to preserve the level of my brand that I want to have. There is a difference. The key difference is that voice acting is a talent and marketing is a skill. In voice acting, you can do all of the things, take all of the classes, go to all the seminars, make a million demos, but there still has to be a base level of talent at the bottom if you're really going to succeed in this business. It's not just talking. It's being able to take direction. It's being able to show nuance and emotion. And that's why there's such a disparity between voice actors, those that make 
$500 a year and those that make over a million dollars a year. Marketing is a skill. It's something that you can learn, that you can practice, that you can get better at because it's a learnable trade. And marketing for voice acting is also a very specific niche. If you go to a marketing expert and say, I'm a voice actor and I need help marketing, they may have never worked with a voice actor before. And it's very specific who we market to, how we market to them, and the types of jobs that we are looking for. So it's a skill set that they may not have that we have just by the nature of having worked in the business and knowing who our clients are. Voice actors, their brand is themselves. As voice actors, we are promoting us. We're promoting ourselves. It's not just that we have a business. ABC voiceovers come buy our product today. Buy one, get one freely. We don't operate retail businesses. We operate a highly professional service talent. So I think those two dynamics are different. And that's kind of where that the difference in the double standard is. But I will agree, I think that is really imperative for voice talent to leverage people that are better at certain tasks than themselves. I am not good at actually getting that work done. I'm very busy and I just know I don't make the time to get a lot of this consistent marketing work done. Uh, and so I hire people that help me with that, you know, and I think that's what we should do. So good job. Double standard is recognizable. I do think it's a little different on the voice actor side uh, because we're obviously we're selling ourselves. So we do need to be able to market ourselves and not just rely on someone else. But yeah, let's get that help where we need it. Question nine. What should a final audition include when submitted? Normalization, silence at the beginning or end? Here's Kelly again. For me, if it's just an audition, I don't expect a fully edited audio piece. I would like your name at the beginning, whatever the copy is, and then a cut at the end. I don't need any extra sounds. I don't need it to be you know, normalized. It's just an audition at this point. It's not the final product. I think your final audition should have just a little bit of silence at the beginning, maybe about a half a second, just so you have a little bit of airspace before you start. I think it should have a name slate, unless the casting director specifically says no name slate. And I think your slate should be just your name. Don't tell stories. Don't slate your agency. Don't say how much you want the job. Just literally your name a little bit of silence after your name slate, and then go into your take. And I think you should put just a little bit of silence between each take, and again, a little bit of silence at the end. It should be recorded at good levels, so you should know how to record yourself at a good gain level. If you find when you get out of the booth that your levels are a little low, you could normalize the file or amplify your audition. The challenge is, is when you normalize or amplify anything that you've recorded, you're also gonna amplify any noise that's in the file. So if you are dealing with noise floor issues, if you boost the entire thing, not only are you boosting your voice to be louder, but you're also boosting your noise floor to be louder. So buyer beware on that. But ultimately I think the best thing to do is to set your levels at the beginning so that you are recording yourself at appropriate levels when it's going into the mic in the first place so that you don't have to do anything on the back end. 
I think in today's marketplace, the specs are asking for people to be real, as real as possible. And I think they want to hear you breathing. And I think they want to hear you being a normal human being. They do not want to hear processed, finished work. Your job is not to deliver the file that goes on television. Your job is to deliver an audition. So making sure that you've recorded at appropriate levels, done a name slate, removed mistakes, and put just a little bit of silence in between things so that there's appropriate transitions, that's it. The only time that I do anything else is if I take a really, really gaspy breath, like <gasps> that is distracting and does not add to the performance, I will tamp that down a bit. But breaths that are in conversation in the middle of lines, I don't do anything with them because it's just me speaking. And they've asked for auditions of just me speaking. They want me to be real. Question 10. In American culture, talking about how much money we make is frowned upon, but that really stifles productive conversations about career parts. So as a voice artist, what exactly did you make in the last year? And is this typical, less, or more than your usual? Here's Alyssa. Last year, I made about $240,000. This is pretty typical. I've been making six figures since about 2014. I generally increase my income between 5 and 10% every year, and I had a big dip uh, when I first moved out of New York into South Carolina and took maternity leave, and then it's been growing progressively again. I've already surpassed what I made last year, and I'm on track to make between three and 350 this year. Oh, this is a touchy subject, right? People don't want to talk about money. I actually have people that I will discuss my particular income with because they're open with me as well. And it helps us both just, you know, it pushes each other. But, um, you know, the general public, I am not going to sit here and, and share what my income is. I will say that I had my first six-figure year in 2018. So I con I've continued to smash the goals that I set for myself each year. And I always make more money per year because I continue to push myself, continue to grow my client base, continue to increase my marketing efforts. Or uh, over the years, I figure out what works, what doesn't. I've learned more about posting stuff and I've gotten a better handle on how social media works in general. There are a lot of things that go into me increasing my income each year, and it's not just because of time. Time passing doesn't mean you're going to make more money. You have to hustle to make that. So I am very proud of myself and my own efforts. My husband is proud of me. My kids are, well, they're not, you know, they're ungrateful. Like, <laughs> like many kids, <laughs> they don't know how good they got it. Is it typical, the money I make? I don't think so. I think I'm in the top bracket. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying I, I figured it out. I've figured out the path that my career needs to take and the things that I need to do to continue to move things forward. I also think I'm in the exact job that I was always meant to be in. And so I like having complete control of my business and what happens. I'm not going to give you the exact number on my 1040, but uh, excluding coaching and demos uh, and other interests, uh, actual voiceover income was low seven figures. And that reflects strong growth 2020 over 2019 uh, and a bit of growth 2021 over 2020.
Okay, this is the last question today. Thank you to everyone that has submitted your questions. And of course, thank you to this amazing team for answering these. We will have a part two to this, answering the next 11 questions around about Christmas time. But check out the next episode in sequence, following this one in a couple of weeks time with Maria Pendolino, who you've heard from today, all about politicals. And it's a listener submission episode. So those are always fun. Anyway, this is the last question. Question 11. I've not needed Source Connect yet, but should I install it anyway to better market myself? Here's Kelly. At this point, yes. Because of the pandemic, a lot of agencies are still not going into studios and a lot of talent don't want to go into studios. And so they are requiring people to have home studio setups with some sort of connectivity platform such as Source Connect. So I told a lot of my local talent to to get Source Connect at home so I can market them better. It really opens up your marketability and it allows, you know, my local talent to get booked in other markets and also for my out-of-state talent to get booked in Chicago. It has really opened up the entire voiceover industry in general. You no longer need to go in person. You can really be anywhere and do voiceover. So at this point, I'm not sure if it's going to go away anytime soon. It seems to have really broadened the scope of options for clients and for talent. Yes. If you desire to be a professional talent in today's day and age, uh, at some point you're going to need Source Connect and the time to learn how to use it and install it is not the night before the job you booked. Install it now, practice using it, connect with a couple different talents and feel confident about it so that when you do book something that requires it, you are already a power user of the software and you won't be behind the eight ball. Get it now. There's no reason not to. If you are working with an agency and you are getting auditions that do require Source Connect, even though you haven't needed it yet, I would recommend installing it, getting all the bugs worked out, and familiarizing yourself with it so you're ready when you do book that session. I have had more Source Connect tests with engineers and engineers that I've worked with before via Source Connect in the last year and a half during COVID than I did in my previous eight years combined of using Source Connect. I am consistently hearing from audio engineers that people misrepresent their spaces and their experience with Source Connect and aren't ready when they get into session. It makes you look unprofessional. However, if you are not working with an agency and not getting those opportunities to audition for things where they're requiring Source Connect. If you're self-marketing, working on Voice123, doing e-learning and other projects that generally don't require Source Connect, then there's no reason for you to get it yet. If you're not booking jobs that require Source Connect, don't get it until you need it. However, if you do book something that requires Source Connect, I'd say schedule a test with the Source Connect representatives way in advance, because sometimes Source Connect can be a little confusing or overwhelming um, when you're first starting to use it. Another thing is Source Connect offers a free trial. I think it's a 15-day free trial. So you could do that. You could sign up for the free trial and use that, and you still might not have to actually purchase Source Connect unless you're, you're booking all the time, which which will be great, which you'll be able to, you know, pay for the Source Connect if you're booking jobs all the time. At a minimum, it's good to know how to use Source Connect. So if nothing else, uh, 
do the trial version, get comfortable with how to map your ports, uh, and uh, understand what you need to do to activate it when uh, when you do actually get hired for a job that requires it. You know, I do think for most talent, it's it's an expense worth writing off. Almost all Source Connect clients who are demanding it are going to be paying you enough to cover the permanent membership anyway, uh, or the permanent license, I should say. So, you know, it it is becoming a tool that is industry standard and is more and more mandatory now than it used to be. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, at least get familiar with it, if, even if you don't buy it. Be ready to buy it when the time comes. The VO School podcast was produced by Heather Lynn Watt, Joan Gavino, Lisa Leonard, Gina Scarper, Femi London, Tiffany Van Landingham, Diane Richmond Knox, Zach Allerman, and myself, Jamie Moffat. Special thanks to Patreon super member Angus McLeod and our sponsors, JMC Demos, Voice123, and Backstage. We'll see you next time. <laughs>